Hello and welcome once again to the Life Ready Podcast, a presentation of Blind Citizens Australia. I'm Steve Richardson. Thanks for your company. The song you're hearing is Raw by Katy Perry, and it's the pick choice of the featured guest for this podcast, Liz Wheeler. Liz was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa at the age of 18 and gradually lost her sight over a number of years. Her life's journey has taken her from a career as an executive in the Australian tax office to a complete about-face when she decided to study counselling. Liz struggled for a long time to come to terms with her blindness, but as you're about to find out, she's a lot stronger for the struggle. Liz's ultimate goal is to simply be herself. Her world would be one where her blindness doesn't matter, where she can be just Liz. Liz, thanks for taking the time to join us. No problems. Thanks for having me. So tell us the Liz Wheeler story. Okay, the Liz Wheeler story. Let's see. Where do I start? So I live in Sydney. I've got a husband and a guide dog called Poppy who came into my life four years on the 10th of May. And I have a condition known as retinitis pigmentosa, which has slowly been taking my sight. I was diagnosed at 18. Mm. And I am currently a student studying counselling. Okay. So you were diagnosed at 18, but you had functional sight until fairly recently then I take it. Yes. So with retinitis pigmentosa, it takes your sight from the outside in. So it slowly progresses to tunnel blindness. And then depending on how long you live or how quick your disease is, it can lead to total blindness. So At 18, I had lost some peripheral vision, enough for family members to notice and recommend it gets checked out, but I was still able to function quite well. I used to say my central vision held out for a very, very long time and the joke was that I couldn't see anything next to me, but I could sit at the back of a pub and keep everyone up to date with what the football score was on the screen (laughs) over the other end. (laughs) One of the other people I spoke to in the podcast series lost his sight over the period of about a month, so not much time to to think about it. But I guess you had a fair bit of time to slowly adjust to your increasing vision loss. I wish I could say that was true. Um, That would be lovely if you sort of lost a bit, knew what was going on and then adjusted and continued on this course of life um, smoothly. Unfortunately, that was not my reality. One of the things when you slowly and gradually lose your sight is you're not always aware of why your problems are occurring. I use denial to cope. And so as my vision progressively got worse and worse, I had all kinds of excuses for why I was struggling to do the things I used to do before. I avoided a lot of things. So instead of recognising that perhaps my sight loss was what might be causing me difficulties getting to shops or buying milk or crossing roads, I chose to believe the neighbourhood had become busier. The people making the milk had changed the labelling so it was impossible to read. All manner of things to kind of, I guess, not recognise what was going on. Well, that's certainly very interesting. I guess that's sometimes what happens when life crises affect you and you don't want to admit that you have a problem. You just want to kind of hide away from it and not accept the new reality. 
And I'm not sure whether it's that journey that took you to studying counselling, but I'd like to talk a bit about that further in a little while. You didn't start out doing counselling though, did you? No. So um, I basically, well, if we go right back, um, I started out in a supermarket like most teenagers did, doing cleanup in aisle four. Um, before <laughs> before moving into another retail job, I had what I called summer of fun and got a job at bras and things with my best friend where we made it our mission to work to earn enough money to buy our drinks on Saturday night. <laughs> big goals, <laughs> yeah. big dreams. Life-changing. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then um, my father sort of had a bit of a chat and said, listen, think you need to get a bit of a serious job Mm. so we sat down and they had some jobs going at the tax office and um they were in the call center gst was coming in i'm giving away my age now but yeah so i applied and i got myself a job and very quickly realized that this was an environment in which i could flourish and focused on a career so within a very short period of time i went from answering calls saying hello this is liz how can i help you let me just transfer your payment to team leading, training a lot of people within the call centre. I ended up running a small call centre, so I ran the not-for-profit and GST call centre and then eventually ended up as a national director managing quality for the whole of the ATO. So. Certainly the serious talk with your father led to a more serious direction in your career for that part of your life anyway. I believe so and I think also I was a teenager when I was doing those those younger jobs and then I sort of, I'd received my diagnosis at 18, was a bit silly for a while and then I had been told, which is not correct of doctors to do this and I like to say that because people with RP love to ask each other how long have I got and the answer is no one knows. But I was told that I would be lucky to have 10 years of sight left and so with that in mind I thought, geez, I better get a good job and make as much money as I can because who knows what's coming in the future. Yeah. So I think I kind of grew up a little bit quicker than a lot of other people and I think that reflected. So I was an executive by the age of 21. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) The human capacity is a lot stronger than what medical professionals would sometimes have us believe and I think that giving us answers like that can often be really detrimental because sometimes we've been known to exceed those bounds and cancer survivors and people who've been told they're going to go into a wheelchair and other things, they just haven't happened the way that it's been predicted. But I think though sometimes in your case, it may have actually had a positive effect and that it kind of got you motivated to start getting on with your life and preparing yourself. I think I was lucky it was a positive outcome. When I reflect upon it, what I observe, it was probably one of the very first examples of other people placing a judgment and stereotype on the disability that I now, I guess, had and setting me limitations based on it. And I think that occurs and continues to occur throughout my life, but it was the first time and it was a huge one and it had the potential, I guess, to go the other way. So I guess I was just really lucky that I figured I would run as fast and as hard as I could until I smashed and couldn't go any further and deal with it then. As opposed to just going, well, I guess this is my lot. I better give up. (laughs) And I think this is where the problem occurs because not everyone attacks it that way. My experience with many people that I've talked to, we've all had similar people tell us similar things and we all carry a similar experience and it tends to be about how we react to it that is the key. Yeah, and worse still, still, I guess, um, 
worse than lucky is that I believed that medical doctors had the right to tell me those things because I felt that he was trying to help me and he was doing what he needed to do. I was young, inexperienced in this world, so were my parents. So I actually remember when I went for my promotion, I was seeing a new ophthalmologist by now and this is where the luck comes in, seeing a different person, and I actually took the job application and job description in to this ophthalmologist and said to him, do you think with my vision and condition, I was legally blind by now, I would be able to do this job? And the luck comes in because he shoved it away and he said, that's for you to decide. And I think he said something along the lines of, I know a barrister who's totally blind and he does it, so whatever you want to do, you if you think you can do it, you do it until you can't. So that's where the luck came in. But, yeah, I had been inadvertently taught that, that wasn't a decision I could make until he corrected me. And I thought that was luck. <laughs> I think it comes down to choice as well. And that was what I had fundamentally missed, that how I choose to live my life and those goals that I wish to pursue are for me to decide based on who I am, how I'm living and what I'm experiencing. And it's not for others to put those limitations on me. And that took a long time to learn. In fact, I still have to learn it sometimes. <laughs> Because I, I can be so damned unsure of what I'm doing. <laughs> and I think it's very easy too if you're not feeling very positive on a certain day for someone to knock you over. And so I think that's a part of something that's that's ongoing through everyone's life. Yeah, I, I really can feel with that as well. We're human and we're not always one thing and always one way. I think what I also want to share with people listening is um, probably in my early 30s, I hit what I like to call the critical incident with my retinitis pigmentosa. And that's where my coping mechanisms that I mentioned before, that the uh, the denial instead of the, the beautiful flow of adjusted, move on, adjust and move on, <laughs> the fantasy of that, the denial and, and avoidance hit a point where that was ineffective. And um, people often laugh, but this is very true. My family ran an intervention for me. (laughs) This is how bad I got. (laughs) And they sat me down and told me it was okay and I could stop fighting and I had gone blind. And I swear it felt like all of these flashes of things happened at once and I suddenly went, oh, my gosh, this is what's going on because what had been happening internally for me was I felt like I had been pretty successful. I'd done a lot of things well and, you know, I had a lot of things under control and suddenly all I was doing was failing. That's what it felt like. I was failing to cross the road. I was failing to cook dinner. I was failing to be able to get my work done because I couldn't, I didn't understand, but suddenly in my head I had become a failure and it took my family to say, Liz, you've gone blind. And then of course I would say, I have gone blind, but I can still see. And there was this torment because I had these stereotypes as well, that if I could still see something, then I should be able to do something. Why was I struggling? And I didn't deserve to get help or to use equipment when I was just obviously failing to use my sight is pretty mean very mean to myself but that was really where I was at 
So I guess for people who haven't experienced it or, or can't relate to what it's like to essentially be blind or severely vision impaired but still be able to see something, I felt often like I was a fraud and that it continually came back to me just not trying hard enough. And I think part of that is that even to today, my brain still thinks I can see. And it tells me every day that I see as much as I did when I was born, in spite of the fact that that's not true. So there's this real difficulty in how I'm programmed that I never actually realise I've lost sight and that can be really, really dangerous <laughs> and can be really complex. So when I hit my critical incident, this was what I was battling, this sense of needing to get a hand and get some help and do things differently, knowing that I couldn't see but not really knowing that I couldn't see. <laughs> yeah. There is this real difficulty in accepting things have changed I feel really responsible mm, yeah and and this is just me being very honest I know intellectually I know what has happened to me is not my fault but I still be, feel really responsible for it and that's a battle in itself and I think as a result of all that my version had me in effect not leave my house independently or confidently or at all for long periods of time for yeah. about two years, two years of my life lost. Wow. I left that job and I do believe that was the right choice. It wasn't easy and it took a long time for me to leave. It was probably over a year of taking time out, going back, attempting some rehab, going back before I realised there was so much. There was so much. There was my marriage that I needed to nourish and sustain and I was exhausted from figuring out how to be disabled figuring out how to accept that my vision was where it was at um, there was basics there was cooking I was covered in burns <laughs> that's been resolved now um, thankfully. there was yeah thankfully there was the computing like knowing I could use the computer a bit but why was I always in pain when I have these headaches why could I why was I making such ridiculous mistakes um there was so much and ultimately for me, for, for my best choice was not to continue to have a high level, high demand, high expectation, high travel job um, when I had so many other things to address. So that was what dropped. And I say this, um, I think something would have had to have gone and I think if I'd attempted to keep the job, I probably would have ended up giving it up anyway just for where I was. And I'm talking a critical incident, I'm talking loss of vision, I'm talking emotional distress, I'm talking someone who literally had pretty well done nothing, no skills, no abilities to cope as a vision impaired person. Shocking. You know, um, really, really bad state. I think I could have lost a marriage as well. Um, yeah, the, the cost was going to be higher if you'd, if you'd held it on. It was, yeah. And I think sometimes as people do, there can be judgments. People will say, oh, why didn't you just get a talking computer? You'd have been right. And I'm thinking, okay. Like, <laughs> and people said, oh, why don't you just get one of those sticks? You'd have been right. And you think. It doesn't work like that. It and doesn't. Even little things like you and I have had a pre-podcast mm. discussion about formatting documents. It can even be something as simple as formatting documents. If you're writing a document as an executive, you really have no idea what it looks like. A screen reading computer won't tell you that. It'll tell you the text of what's on the page, but it won't tell you 
how it looks, uh, but somebody else will. And someone who is wanting your information in a certain way will judge you by the standard that you produce and not because you're incapable of doing your job, but just because it looks like you are. And that's assuming you're in an environment where an accessible Word document to communicate important information is the acceptable standard. If you were like where I was, where it was A3 reporting using infographics and graphs that need to need to link through into um, inaccessible access databases and whatnot, it was not the battle for someone in crisis. So I made a choice and I think I made the right one. And I guess that's really hard for me to share. And we spoke about this beforehand. I wasn't sure if I would share that. And again, it comes back to as proud as I am of where I am now, And as happy as I am, because I think I should say that this is a happy ending. (laughs) Listen on, I'm happy. But that was really hard and I still feel a little bit of shame. Could have tried harder. You're listening to the Life Ready Podcast, a presentation of Blind Citizens Australia. My guest is Liz Wheeler. So you stopped working where you were and you did change. And what fascinates me, it was a sort of like a 180 almost. And you decided Mm -hmm. to study counselling. Tell us a bit about that. That was a very deliberate 180. So it was quality, analytics, forms, government, rules, policies, regulation you know, all the sexy stuff. <laughs> and, um, and and a lot of it, to be honest, a lot of it was um, projects. So quality is very linked to things like change management, continuous improvement. So a lot of what I was doing was leading projects to put in new procedures and things like that. So when we spoke about people, they were clients, they were stakeholders, or when we were designing systems and processes, they were the human factors mm. and when we needed to engage culturally we had occupational psychologists and people coming in and things like that and so I just thought you know what I'm starting again why not see what it's like to get to be the human <laughs> and I think I always have had a, a big caring heart um, but I've also had a, a giant analytical brain and so I thought I would feed, understand more the human side. And um, I really loved it. I really enjoyed it, what I'm learning. And um, it has been very slow. That's been a personal challenge for me. Like I said, like I, I ran as fast as I could and smashed as hard as I could. And that has changed. But in doing that, I've discovered a lot more about myself. So it took a long time to even get to uni. The dream was there. The hope was there to start studying and that was good because that gave me a goal and that gave me something to focus on. I had to learn how to get out and about. I moved to a guide dog and that was a very good decision for me and my personality type and my mobility needs. Mm. And then I had to gain the confidence to get into class. I had to battle those computers. I had to start learning how to use them. It didn't come quickly. I still struggle and we're talking five, six years down the track, I still struggle. I think I always will and I blame my brain. 
it won't let go of the visual. <laughs> but I've improved. And then I also learned that I'm going to need to get a bit of a hand in different places. So my uni has given me an academic coach and they do my editing and my formatting. I still do my best and I try my hardest. But where it becomes unreasonable, the amount of time it's going to take me just to deliver what someone else could do easily, I decided I'd make the call that, hey, get a helping hand if it's there and it's being offered stop being a hero because all I'm doing is wasting three hours and making myself sick. I may as well allow someone to take over that small task because it's, that's not my goal. My goal is not to be the world's perfect editor and to produce the most good looking document on earth. No. My goal is to be able to sit in a room with someone and support them while they're going through a difficult time. I think that's where my life goals have changed as well. I think what happened to me and how I lived it and experienced it has been a big catalyst for how I choose to pursue phase two of my life. One of my big goals is reduce the length of suffering for others. Like I said, there was two years and then there was a lot more between that where I suffered. And um, when you get to the other side and you get the help and you get the skills and you really, really start to enjoy life and your vision impairment doesn't become something that's happened or happening or something to be tortured by it becomes a part of who you are and, and it starts to enrich your life and it starts to open up opportunities and experiences and alternative ways of thinking you never knew existed it's just amazing and so I do spend a lot of my time I guess invested in that I share my story a lot through guide dogs and a part of that is educating and creating awareness within the community so that we can reduce the levels of stereotype and ableism and that that limitation we spoke of before I can't pay back the the hundreds of people who have helped me. I can't pay them back. So I try and pay forward, participating in fundraising. I think I'll have to check it, but I may have helped raise close to a million dollars for guide dogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that gives me hope that people are getting those cane skills or that guide dogs can spend that time with people and really support them and help them or that if you end up needing a guide dog, you can get it. And I'm more open to spending time just enjoying life. So my husband and I, we do a lot of travel and we just love it. I'll leave the guide dog at home when I travel and use the cane, which has been really quite good. And in spite of the vision loss, I do some pretty cool things. I think some of the highlights have been um, going to Vanuatu, yeah. climbing through a forest, wow. up through water to a um, waterfall. I just think, it was madness, but it wasn't madness. Like last year was what I called the year of vulnerability. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'm terrified of everything. So I'll say yes. Any opportunities that come up, I'll say yes. And this opportunity came up where these people were looking for a person about my age to play a character in a movie and the character was vision impaired so they were hoping to cast authentically and so I went for the audition not expecting to get the role and in fact being willing to welcome the rejection because I needed to start getting comfortable with how things happened anyway I got the role in this movie and it was just this wonderful experience of you know being there because I'm vision impaired, acting, performing this role in what I think is a really, it's a short film, it's 23 minutes, it was really, really powerful story 
It's called Sweet Tooth and it's a prequel to Hansel and Gretel. And anyway, the movie, hopefully it'll get played soon. I can't actually tell you guys where it is. It's still going through a few processes. But Kate Blanchett ended up becoming the narrator in that movie. So this person who sort of thought, oh, my gosh, I've lost everything. What am I going to do? Is now halfway through a counselling degree, travels and climbs crazy mountains and has starred alongside Kate Blanchett in a movie. What more could you ask for? (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. This is something that I've been asking other contributors to this series. What do you see for your future? I'm interested to know what sort of counselling you'd like to do, but also in other ways in your personal life, other achievements you'd like to do with your life. I think I want to make sure that my family and I have great happiness through gratitude and through doing I think just good things that matter. So in spite of the challenges and what comes ahead, I think that's the ultimate goal. And so we will make decisions that might be outside of the social norms that aim more towards those elements. So we might move potentially to Queensland to be closer to nieces and nephews and the little people and to just gain more joy from that. Um, I think that's something that's probably on the cards in the future. I think with the counselling, I have a different idea every week about where or how, but I think ultimately I want to be able to sit with people who need that kind of support and particularly people who might not otherwise be able to afford it. I want to be able to get to those people. That's very important for me because I feel that, you know, a lot of those kinds of supports go beyond access for some people. So somehow I want to fill in that gap. And I think that's probably the main drivers for me and the main focus. Travel, selfishly, probably travel would be the big thing too. Always having the next holiday planned. We've got a musical tour of the deep south of America, which we're very much looking forward to. I think it's exciting. And then also a Caribbean cruise is part of that holiday as well. And I'm really looking forward to helping little baby turtles get to the water. So They take you out to a beach where all the turtles lay their eggs and then most of them will scamper and make it to the water but there's a few who can't and we'll get to carry them to the water. So that's (laughs) my big excitement. Liz, you've had an incredible journey. At times the road's had some potholes in it. But but what I think is the most important is that you're surviving all of that. You've come through the worst of it and even though you still have your challenges and your negative thoughts, you're at base a survivor. And it seems to me very much like you are coming out on top, discovering what it is that you want from life and you've changed your direction both personally and professionally towards meeting those goals. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the big thing, isn't it? Realising that change is going to happen. And um, I think what I've learned is I'm not vision impaired, I'm just Liz. And I think I just really ultimately at the end of the day just want to live as Liz. And if Liz has a bit less sight, okay, a lot less sight than everyone else, who cares? Liz is going to live how Liz lives. Maybe that's down. I've got other strengths. And I just want to be okay with that and not to kind of continue trying to separate the two or whatnot. I think that would be my ultimate goal, just to be Liz. Liz, thanks very much for chatting with me. It's been a fascinating conversation. Everyone has a story to tell, no matter where you come from. And it's always really interesting to hear them. And I appreciate you sharing that with us. Thank you for having me.
I've been speaking with Liz Wheeler. The Life Ready Podcast is a presentation of Blind Citizens Australia's Life Ready Project. I'm Steve Richardson. I do hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And until next time, take care.